This is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1946, Steven Spielberg was born. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And for the hour, for an hour, we spend some time on this remarkable life. Let's start off at the beginning. Steven Allen Spielberg was born on December 18th, 1946 in Ohio. World War II was over, and the country was finally getting back to normal. In the mid-40s, that meant fathers commuted to their jobs. Most mothers stayed home with their kids. Cars were American, and telephones were connected to wires. Middle-class families flocked to the suburbs. Stephen grew up in suburbia with his three sisters. His Jewish parents, Leah and Arnold, were the children of immigrants. Arnold, a World War II vet, loved science and machines. After finishing his studies in electrical engineering, he quickly found work in the brand new field of computer science. At that time, computers were the size of entire rooms, and few people knew about them. Arnold was one of the first. Here's Steven Spielberg. He was on the team that engineered the first commercial data processor at RCA in the uh, early 50s. And my mom was a concertinist, so they, they, they got my attention in two different directions. It was difficult to find a place where the family could put down roots because Arnold was such an outstanding engineer. He was always being offered new and better jobs, which meant that the Spielbergs moved a lot. Going from one school to another was hard for Stephen. He was always the new boy in class and spent a lot of his childhood feeling like an outsider. His refuge was a cluttered bedroom. He kept turtles, free-flying parakeets, and a lizard as pets. And he wrote stories instead of doing his homework. Stephen often longed for a friend who was different like he was. Sometimes he thought that a small, kindly alien would be ideal. When he was required to read A Tale of Two Cities, Stephen's doodles opened up his future. So what I did was I just made little stick figures in the, in the dog-eared sections of the book. You know, anime, uh, one frame at a time, different positions, and it was like a flip book, and I just did flip books and, and saw these images come to life. And that was the first time I actually was able to create an image that moved um, on the pages of that classic. In 1957, Stephen's life changed when his father, Arnold, received a movie camera as a Father's Day gift from his wife. The 11-year-old Stephen couldn't wait to use it. At first, he staged film crashes with his Lionel trains and watched the films over and over. He thought they were great. His dad's movies, on the other hand, were blurry and boring. Stephen had lots of suggestions for improving them, but his father had a better idea. He simply gave Stephen the camera. So I took over the camera and I began to make little stories. My three sisters, younger sisters, sold tickets for these little 8-millimeter movies I was making. They go door to door to door to door selling tickets. In 1958, he became a Boy Scout and made a 9-minute film titled The Last Gunfight to earn his merit badge in photography. Spielberg cast his fellow scouts as cowboys, and when he screened it for them, the troop went wild, shouting, whistling, and cheering. In that moment, Stephen later said, I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. He was 12 years old. Here's Spielberg on how it all started. I was infatuated with the control 
that movies gave me in creating a sequence of events or a feeling or a train wreck with two Lionel trains that I could then repeat and see over and over and over again. And I think it was just a realization that I could change the way I perceive life through another medium to make it come out better for me. And when I realized I could make life better for me through this little eight millimeter rinky-dink medium, I felt really good about my life, myself, and possibly bringing some other people into this amazing medium to enjoy what I was putting together. Young Spielberg didn't play sports and could barely run a mile. He was practically invisible to girls. He was short and skinny, and he was Jewish. Living in Phoenix, a city with very few Jewish families, made him a little different. But with a camera, he was less lonely and less of an outsider. While making these films, he found out that giving his classmates acting parts was like inviting them to a really great party, and they all wanted to come. In high school, he attained the rank of Eagle Scout before finding out that his family were moving again. This time, it was to Saratoga, California, where his dad would be working for IBM. For Stephen, far worse than the move was the news that his parents were separating. It was the unhappiest time in his life. Yet, the move brought him much closer to the center of the film industry. The chance came the summer before his senior year of high school, while visiting cousins in Los Angeles. Stephen took a tour of Universal Studios. They gave everybody a bathroom break about midday, and I got off to go to the bathroom. And I hid in the stall, and I waited until it was really quiet in the bathroom, assuming everybody had left and gotten back on the bus and left again. And I came out a half an hour later, and I was free. I was on the Universal Studios lot, but I spent the whole afternoon just walking in and out of doors, basically, sound stages and cutting rooms, and took my own tour and had an amazing time. At the end of the day, I went to borrow a telephone to call my cousin to come pick me up, and I fortuitously borrowed the telephone of the Universal Studios film librarian, a man named Chuck Silvers, who asked me what I was doing there. I told him the story I just told you, and uh, he laughed and thought that was had a lot of chutzpah and showed ambition and showed that I really wanted to be a director, or at least I wanted to break into the business in some way, and he gave me a three-day pass on his own name for me to come back for three full days and I did that and then I came back on the end of the third day and Chuck said he couldn't he didn't have the authority to sign any more passes and I should use my own you know resources or contacts I made over the last three days to well nobody would you know take me under their insurance umbrella and give me a chance to observe more so I took a shot at maybe the guard would recognize me without having to show him my papers. And so on the fourth day, I, same clothes, walked onto the lot and waved at Scotty, the guard. Remember Scotty? Scotty waved back. And I was, the next two and a half months during summer vacation, I was on the lot five days a week, every day for two and a half months until school began. And when we come back, more on the life of Steven Spielberg here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Steven Spielberg. We left off with a fortuitous tour of the Universal Studios that changed Steven's life. Let's pick back up where we left off. Steven roamed the sound stages taking notes. One day he found an empty office on the lot. So he called the switchboard and had the office's phone hooked up. Then, with his fake office as a base, he spent his days hanging around sets, talking with directors, editors, and actors, and learned everything he could about the business. It was the education of his dreams. Even getting kicked off an Alfred Hitchcock set was a thrill. Returning to high school for his senior year was quite a letdown. So was getting rejected by the film schools at the University of Southern California, USC, and the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA, because of his poor grades. The only school that would take him was California State at Long Beach, and it didn't even have a film department. Stephen didn't want to go, but his parents felt differently. So he enrolled as an English major, went to as few classes as possible, and spent most of his time at Universal Studios as an unpaid intern. In order to get a paying job at Universal Studios, Steven had to persuade people to take a look at his films. So Spielberg wrote and shot a short love story and showed it to the execs at Universal. They loved it and offered him a seven-year contract to direct television. Spielberg confessed later, I quit college so fast, I didn't even clean out my locker. I think when I came back on the lot this time professionally, the first thing I realized when I moved into my official office, not my illegal office, but my legal office, was I knew where all the sound stages were, I knew where post-production was, I knew where the back lot was, I knew where all the bathrooms were, especially the one I hid in when I first got off the bus. And I, I felt like I had come home. I felt like Universal Studios had always been my home, was ordained to be my home for the rest of my life, and I realized I felt very, very much at home. This felt more familiar to me than the house I grew up in. That's a horrible, heinous thing to say. I love my mom and my dad and my three younger sisters, but this is where I felt I belonged. Spielberg's first job at Universal was directing an early episode of Night Gallery, a series of spooky half-hour shows with twisty surprise endings. Now I was doing my first television show starring Joan Crawford, no less, and the average age of the crew was 50. And um, I realized that, oh my God, this was the crew that made my favorite movies of all time. This was the generation that had produced the golden age of Hollywood. And when I showed up with my acne and my long hair and the viewfinder pretentiously around my neck like some kind of a, a talisman that would protect me from all evil, um, I think they took one look at me and they said, this kid better prove himself quickly or he's out of here. Because I remember being greeted by tremendous hostility from the crew, from the motion picture crew. And the only friends I had on that first television show were my actors. Surprisingly, maybe not so surprisingly, Barry Sullivan, Tom Bosley, Joan Crawford. They were the people that backed me. But the rank and file of the crew were just sending daggers my way, working as slowly as they could, not to get themselves fired, maybe to get me pushed off the show because I wound up four days behind schedule on my first professional job. But I learned so much from doing that show. Next, Spielberg directed an episode of Columbo starring Peter Falk, which earned him the rights to direct two action films, Duel and the Sugarland Express. And then 
there was the shark. It was decades before modern CGI, so a real mechanical shark was made for a movie they were calling Jaws. Weighing 12 tons with a body the size of a stretch limo, Spielberg named the shark Bruce after his lawyer. But while shooting the opening scene of the movie, Bruce sank to the bottom of the ocean, and the crew started calling the movie Flaws. Here's Spielberg on how he handled this setback. And the next morning we got the word that they were going to be down maybe three to four weeks with a shark. Uh, that's when I realized, okay, plan B. Now, I never planned for a plan B. But that Monday, I suddenly had to improvise a plan B, which was basically to make the film as scary as I possibly could by suggesting the shark without having to show the shark. And that became my motif for the rest of the picture. I promise you that if the shark had been working that first day and Chrissy Watkins had been taken in that first scene and the way my storyboards had, I had a fin in that shot, I had a conical nose coming out of the water, never seen the whole shark, I had a tail. Had there been any evidence of the shark, even on the scene where the pier is pulled out and comes back again and chases the swimmer back in, the fisherman, I promise you the audience wouldn't have leapt three feet out of their seats and thrown their popcorn into the air when the shark came out when Roy Schotter was chumming. You wouldn't have had that shock had the shark been used too often and too clearly before that. The shark not working when we needed it to work probably added $175 million to the box office because I think what's scary about that movie is, is the unseen, not exactly what we see. And we do see the shark. It's shocking. Verna Fields, a tremendous film editor, would surgically cut a frame off the head of the shark and cut a frame off the tail of the shark and those two frames made the difference between the shark looking like a great white 26-foot-long predator or looking like a 26-foot-long turd. Jaws was a spectacular hit, the first ever summer blockbuster, earning a whopping $260 million. It also became the top-grossing film in history. Already planning another film, Spielberg knew one thing for sure— my next picture will be made on dry land, he said. There won't even be a bathroom scene. True to his word, Spielberg set his next picture far from the ocean, though it did have two bathroom scenes. In science fiction terms, an encounter of the first kind is a sighting of a UFO. An encounter of the second kind is seeing or feeling the effects of a UFO. An encounter of the third kind is having direct contact with the UFO and its alien passengers. When Spielberg wrote Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he decided that there would be no bad guys in it. But looking back today, there is one thing he would have done differently. The difference in when I wrote the story in my 20s and what I would have done today is, I don't think today, with a, being a dad of seven kids, I would have let my Richard Dreyfuss character actually get on the mothership and abandon his family to this, to this alien obsession and leave the planet. I'm not sure I would have done that today, but, but, but in my 20s, it was something that was absolutely would have been my choice. Spielberg's close friend, George Lucas, just wrapped Star Wars and came to the set of Close Encounters to see how things were progressing. Here again is Spielberg. George came back from 
Star Wars, a nervous wreck. He didn't feel Star Wars came up to the vision that he had initially had. He felt he had just made this little kid's movie, and he came to Mobile, Alabama, where I was shooting on this humongous set. And George hung out with me for a couple of days and looked around and said, oh my God, your movie's gonna be so much more successful than Star Wars. This is gonna be the biggest hit of all time. I can't believe the set, and I can't believe what you're getting, and oh my goodness. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll trade points with you. You wanna trade some points? He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you two and a half percent of Star Wars if you give me two and a half percent of Close Encounters. So I said, sure, I'll gamble with that, great. And uh, I think I came out on top of that bet. <laughs> I think I did a lot better than George. Both of our movies were wildly profitable. Close Encounters made so much money, rescued Columbia from bankruptcy, and the most money I had ever made on a movie before was from Close Encounters. Close Encounters was just a, a, a meager success story, and Star Wars was a, a phenomenon. And of course, I was the happy beneficiary of a couple of net points of that movie, which I am still seeing money on today. Close Encounters brought Spielberg his first Oscar nomination for Best Director, and Star Wars passed Jaws as the top-grossing film in history. It was time for these two mega-directors to team up. The two put a screenplay together and hired actor Harrison Ford, who had just played Han Solo for Lucas in Star Wars. Lucas named Harrison Ford's character Indiana Smith, and the movie would be called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Spielberg liked everything but the hero's name. Well, how about Indiana Jones, Spielberg suggested. George Lucas produced, Steven Spielberg directed. Here's Spielberg. George had the idea that they were going after an antiquity called the Lost Ark of the Covenant, which I knew a little bit about. I should have known a lot more about it because I'm Jewish and George isn't. But <laughs> George just said, look, you can go over schedule for Columbia Universal on 841, but you're my friend. You can't go over schedule with basically what is the money I'm responsible for. That's all he had to say. And I think Raiders of the Lost Ark was probably the most prepared I've ever been in my career. And when we come back, more on the life of Steven Spielberg. We're spending the hour on his story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the life of Steven Spielberg, and let's continue where we last left off. Despite blistering heat, a scene with 7,000 live snakes, including five deadly cobras, and another scene with hundreds of tarantulas, Spielberg finished almost two weeks early. When Raiders opened a few months later, it was a smash, the most successful film of 1981, Spielberg became a household name. During one of the nights on location for Raiders of the Lost Ark, Spielberg began writing a story of a little alien. What if I were 10 years old again, he wondered, and he needed me as much as I needed him. When I first came up with the idea of E.T., I came up with the actual idea probably when I was a little, little kid, feeling very lost and alienated. 
being this Jewish kid in always all Gentile neighborhoods. But then later in life, when my parents were divorced, feeling very much lost and alone. And I remember on the set of Close Encounters, when I had Richard Dreyfuss and E.T. returning to the mothership, sort of gets swallowed up into the light. And I had this kind of amazing epiphany at that moment while the cameras were rolling. And I thought, I wonder if I should change the ending of this movie. Not another movie, but Close Encounters. What if E.T. is a ex foreign exchange student? What if that extraterrestrial, who we called Puck, stayed behind with Truffaut and Dreyfus goes and they take that E.T. back to Langley or Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and start to study him and communicate with him and really try to figure out what their race is like and how we can further our relationship. Wouldn't that be a great movie? Then I said, no, 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 I'll save that for another movie. But I was haunted by this idea of an E.T. that gets trapped on Earth and doesn't go back into the mothership. So in a sense, when I wrote the story of E.T., that was the progression of epiphanies that led up to the actual story of an alien who's lost and alone and three million miles from home. He doesn't go AWOL. He's curious. He's, his curiosity gets the better of him. And maybe the other aliens were, the botanists were too busy categorizing and finding plants on Earth to put in their little greenhouse. But E.T. was interested in the big redwood trees and he was walking away. 600-year-old E.T. is probably the most lost of all the kids I've ever had in a film. But he's no less lost than Elliot. Lost in a divorce, no real friends in his life. And that was the bonding of E.T. and Elliot. The alien and the alienated. The two souls, lost souls, who absolutely require each other for a very short amount of time so they can both survive in a spiritual way. I mean, for me, E.T. is the most spiritual movie ever made. And, and that was not an accident. I mean, it was something that I always deeply felt. And what Spielberg movie would be complete without the music of composer John Williams? John Williams has made the most remarkable contribution to all of my movies, and they reach the heart universally. In every country, on every continent of the planet, John Williams speaks to people, and John rewrites my movies musically. And I think with E.T., especially at the end, I, ILM and I can make those bicycles lift off and get off the ground. We can do that. But John Williams is the only one who can make them truly airborne because the audience lifts off the ground on John Williams' violins. And the audience is carried across the moon or the sun with John Williams' string section and his horns later on when they land. And I think the last 15 minutes of E.T. is as close to an opera because of John Williams' contributions to that movie than anything I've ever done before in my life. Here's a clip of Spielberg and Williams collaborating on the music for E.T. Spielberg operates the film projector while Williams sits in front of the piano. 
if it would be convenient to go into the call. Yeah. I like that. It, it, matter of fact, it seems like a very natural transition yeah. into the loneliness and out of the uh, the tenderness. Yeah. Yep. Let's see if we can do it. Okay. Let me go the back thing, to the thing is, where do we shift from the call to the theme? Is it on the smile? Is it when he touches that's the a, face? That's it could a good be question. Any, any that's a wonderful question, and your choices are as many frames long as the sequence. Okay. I wouldn't let anybody hurt you. We could grow together, you see? That's certainly the call. Yes, it? that's the call. That's the call. And this is the loneliness. This, this is Elliot's love. This is his heartbreaking. Does he look up again? He looks up a second time. But that, I, the, the call has to be there. Oh, yeah, it? I think yeah. you're right. Absolutely. Let's get that. Absolutely. I always get that confused. Sometimes. Sometimes. Does it ever go up once in the movie <laughs> yet? yet? It hasn't gone up yet, has it? At the end, I'll save it for okay. the last reel. <laughs> E.T. was Spielberg's biggest hit yet. It made more money than any other movie in history, topping Jaws and even Star Wars. Then, there's Jurassic Park. Welcome to Jurassic Park. I'd want to make a dinosaur picture all my life, because I'm a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen, but I could never find a realistic way to do dinosaurs until Michael Crichton figured out a science that would make it almost allowable, which is, hey, if a mosquito bites a dinosaur 150 million years ago, it gets trapped in amber and is preserved in amber, and you extract the DNA from the blood inside the mosquito of the Tyrannosaurus rex, can we not bring back the T-Rex? And it was enough credible science that I went, that is one of the most genius uh, uh, combinations of science and imagination I had ever witnessed anybody come up with. And that was all Michael Crichton. There were a lot of risks involved in an art form that had never been perfected. A main character, digital dinosaur, had never been done before for the movie. So in a way, Jurassic Park was the first movie that ever made its made characters, where the entire success or failure of the story was dependent on these digital characters. That was the first time that was ever done, and that was the risk I think all of us took. When you have something which is so unfamiliar to us in our time, which is a Tyrannosaurus Rex, it's 34 feet standing upright, something that menacing, it's not as interesting for me to have people running through a jungle being menaced by a T-Rex because the people are in a prehistoric terra firma and they're, they're sort of in the territory of where the dinosaurs, when the dinosaurs ruled the earth and we're on their land now. But it's much more interesting for an audience, I think, to put a T-Rex next to a modern car or put raptors inside a modern industrial kitchen or inside a laboratory with computers everywhere, things that we today are familiar with. Jurassic Park was a landmark in visual effects and earned an unprecedented 914 million worldwide. And when we come back, our final installment of our hour-long celebration of the life, the work, the story of Steven Spielberg here on Our American Stories. And as always, 
All of our content can be found at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now the final installment of the life of Steven Spielberg. The tremendous success of what Spielberg dubbed his popcorn movies gave him more creative freedom. Freedom to create Schindler's List. Schindler's List relates a period in the life of Oscar Schindler, a Nazi German businessman who saved the lives of more than 1,300 mostly Polish-Jewish refugees from the Holocaust by employing them in his factories during World War II. Spielberg did post-production work on Jurassic Park at night in Poland and filmed Schindler's List during the day. Here's Spielberg sharing with us the story of casting real Germans to play the Nazi SS soldiers and why people should see Schindler's List. Many of the German actors who interviewed for Schindler's List, and I saw many of their interviews on tape, many of them actually, knowing I was watching the tape, or would be watching the tape, apologized uh, for the generation preceding theirs. When I got there, and I began to, to work on Schindler's List, once those same German actors put on the uniforms of the Waffen-SS, um, um, my attitude changed, and I couldn't talk to them. I couldn't, and, and between shots, they would be schmoozing with me, trying to ask me questions about E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Star, questions that someone who liked those movies would ask the director. And I didn't really want to make small talk. I, I couldn't get past the uniform, and then my prejudice began to come out, and I began to look at it, and I began to say, my goodness, you know, um, how could I be blaming, you know, the sins of the fathers onto the sons and daughters? And then one day, an amazing thing, thing happened, very early in the schedule, thank goodness. We had Passover. There's a rabbi there, and a lot of my crew and cast came in. And then in walks all the German actors, and they put on yarmulkes, and they sat next to the Israeli actors, and the Israelis opened up the Haggadahs, the prayer books, and began to show the German actors what Passover is all about. And I cried because um, I saw something beautiful that was essentially an entire generation of young German actors that are not culpable and should never be blamed and should never have any fingers pointed at them for something that they weren't around to stop. And that was the message I wanted people to hear, that generations were saved by Oscar Schindler. Uh, 1,300 people spawned 6,000 descendants compared to the 4,000 descendants that are alive in Poland today, down from 3 million Jews before 1939. One of the reasons Spielberg made Schindler's List was that he wanted his children to understand this terrible time in Jewish history. 
It was the first time my children ever saw me cry, he said. When Schindler's List opened, audiences cried too. Though it was sad and sometimes shocking, it also showed courage and decency overcoming terrible evil. The film won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1993, and Spielberg won his first Oscar for Best Director. In 1994, Spielberg's friends, Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen, approached him about starting a film studio together. It was a daring idea. Nobody had launched a new studio in decades because it was so difficult and expensive. Yet Katzenberg had produced a string of animated mega-hits for Disney, including The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and The Lion King. David Geffen, whose work in the music business had made him a billionaire, was one of entertainment's most powerful deal-makers. Spielberg was now considered the world's most successful director. If anybody could launch a new studio, it was these three. In October 1994, DreamWorks Studios opened for business. It was under the DreamWorks label that Spielberg shot Saving Private Ryan. Here's Spielberg. What motivated me to do Private Ryan was this was a tribute to my dad. This was 100% for my dad. When I got the Oscar for Ryan, I, I said, Dad, this is for you. This is yours. I mean, I told my dad many, many years ago that I was going to make a World War II movie for him. The only thing that disappointed my dad was it was about Europe, not, not Asia. And my dad said, but Steve, you didn't tell my story. What about the 490th Bomb Squadron, you know? What about those who flew the hump, my friends who were lost flying the hump? You know, I said, no, Dad, you're right. I didn't tell that story, but this is for your generation. I remember having the first industry screening of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I had two director friends of mine who I really respect saying, wow, the greatest sequence of this movie is the first 15 minutes for that rolling ball and the spiders on the guy's back. And, and I kept thinking, oh, my God, I taught myself in Raiders, and the movie never recovered, and I felt I was about to do the same thing. When I when I shot Saving Private Ryan, I didn't quite know what that opening sequence was going to be because I shot the whole movie in continuity, and I also certainly shot the whole first sequence in continuity. The first shot of the movie is Tom Hanks' hand shaking, uh, his canteen to his face, reveal his captain's bars, and show it's Tom Hanks and pull the camera back in, 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 in the Higgins boat. That was the first shot of the movie, and I went right through to the end of the picture in continuity, which meant that I was making up the entire opening attack of Omaha Beach, the landings. When I say made it up, I didn't make up things that didn't actually happen that, that Stephen Ambrose hadn't written about or other veterans hadn't informed me of. But I did the whole thing stream of consciousness. I had no storyboards, no pre-visualization on the computer. Did the whole thing from actually up here in a weird way because the whole thing was being improvised in a very safe, rational, controlled way, but improvised nonetheless. And I think if anything gave that scene its impact, its first-person, in-your-face impact, it was because I didn't know what was going to happen next, just like real combat. Spielberg knew that, like Schindler's List, saving Private Ryan could be painful to watch, and he was prepared for his audiences to stay away. This particular movie, we felt like we were... We were making a contribution. We were actually thinking, you know, without patting ourselves on the back, that this movie was going to come out. And I thought nobody would go to see this picture. They might see a, a few people go the first weekend because Tom Hanks is the star, but th they're going to be so turned off by the violence, they're not going to come back the second weekend. And I thought this would be a one-weekend wonder, but I thought the film was going to add something 
to inform audiences what soldiers have to really go through when they're in the hellfire of combat. It's honoring all the dads who were part of the greatest generation by having an old man going to the American Cemetery in Normandy and, and visiting that actual site. Every time I go, I cry. I think the book ends, place it in a much larger historical context and show audiences today that this really is about the old men now who were the boys then who allowed us to have a life today the way we live our lives and to have the relative freedoms that we now enjoy. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do it the very, very same way because I did that for the veterans. Matter of fact, it's the veterans who love the bookends because it puts it in a contemporary context. Saving Private Ryan was far from a one-weekend wonder. It was the most successful film of 1998. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and won Spielberg his second Oscar for Best Director. In closing, here's Spielberg on the secret to his success. My job is to put the audience inside the movie. My job is to reduce the aesthetic distance between the audience and the experience. I don't say, okay, now I just have to make light audience popcorn movies to give them relief from whatever my, you know, subconscious demons are that have pushed me into more historical, darker subjects. I don't think that way. When a film's time has come, I know it. I, it doesn't mean the film will be a success. I just know when it's ready for me to commit to directing it. I intuitively know those things. And I think my intuition has been about 75% right on and 25% not right on. And so I'm going with the odds. I'm just going with the odds. Steven Spielberg has 159 credits as a producer and 56 as a director. A few more of those include Poltergeist, The Color Purple, Hook, Jurassic Park, Catch Me If You Can, Munich, and Lincoln. His films have set and broken box office records for decades. They often show how acts of personal courage can change history. They have made people, millions and millions of people, laugh, think, and cry. Nobody, not even Walt Disney, has been so completely wired into what the public wants to see in the cinema. And as a result, his personal wealth is now so vast People have given up trying to estimate it. And it all started in 1957 when he borrowed his father's movie camera. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. Superb storytelling. And it just shows you what one thing can do in a kid's life. That camera doesn't stumble into his hands. Who knows what would have happened? You just can't know. And as always, our storytelling, and especially our storytelling around history, and Steven Spielberg was born on this day in history in 1946, is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And when you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with her terrific and free online courses. And boy, we've done a whole bunch of these on the arts, on history itself, from the founders straight through to the Battle of Shiloh, but also we celebrate our great rights and intellectual property rights through the arts. And as always, we like to emphasize that without the constitutionally protected right to patent, to intellectual property, 
All of the art that we get and appreciate here in this country is not possible. You can't do these movies in Cuba. You can't do them in Yugoslavia. You certainly can't do them in North Korea. And so always we're celebrating American stories here on Our American Stories. Steven Spielberg's story. Thanks, Greg Hengler, as always. Just superb work. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including sports. And on this day in history, in 1886, the great baseball player Ty Cobb was born. And many of you may have never heard of Cobb, and if you did, you probably know Cobb from the movie, and that was a 1994 movie starring Tommy Lee Jones. Well, Cobb was one heck of a baseball player. Lifetime batting average of 367, inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1936. First ballot, 98% of the vote. And by the way, you heard it right. Lifetime batting average, 367. That's crazy. But because of that movie, people would say, great baseball player, horrible man. Well, Hillsdale College had Charles Learson at their college to give a speech about Cobb. He was writing a book about Cobb. And my goodness, the movie version of the man and the real-life version, there was a huge divergence. So now we're about to go to that speech. And first, Learson talks about, well, just historical memory about this man called Cobb. Let's take a listen. After asking around a bit in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York and conducting a highly unscientific poll of friends and relatives and acquaintances scattered about the globe, I came to the conclusion that there were an awful lot of people who had no thoughts or opinion about Ty Cobb, one way or the other, and for a very good reason. They had no idea who he was. An athlete, a few in this group guessed rather feebly, but just as many thought he was the guy who invented the Cobb salad. (laughs) And most of the people just hated me for asking them a question they didn't know the answer to where they hated me more than they had before. Their, this, their reaction, this ignorance, frightened me. I mean, it sent a shiver down my spine and into my wallet. I mean, I do this for a living, and think about it. Before too long, I would be out there peddling a book, promising to tell you everything you wanted to know about someone you probably never heard of. This is not a recipe for success. So that was the first school of thought, or non-school of thought, or school of non-thought. And to me, it was a distressingly large one. But it wasn't the biggest. No, it wasn't. Thankfully for Charles, but not so much for Ty Cobb's legacy. His friends are only one slice of America. The biggest group by far, I sense, consisted of people who who had very definitely had heard of Ty Cobb, but who thought of him in negative terms not just as a sourpuss or even a serious misanthrope, but as one of the worst human beings who ever lived. To them, he was an undeniably great player, a king of the so-called dead ball era. I should say here that Ty Cobb played in the major leagues from 1905 to 1928, all but two of those years for the Detroit Tigers. 
And he was a superstar, the first man voted into the Hall of Fame. His lifetime batting average, 366 over 23 and a half seasons, is amazing and still the highest of all time. These people in the second group knew all that, but they would tell you that Cobb, for all his talent, was a racist bastard and a mean spike sharpening son of a bitch. I sound like Kurt Schilling now, don't I? <laughs> Who thought nothing of injuring his fellow players just to gain another base or score a run. Everyone hated him, the members of this group would say. Indeed, quite a few people I encountered early and even late in my research process described Cobb as a murderer. Some braided together the racist and murderer motifs and asked if I was going to write about the time Cobb stabbed to death a black waiter in Cleveland just because the young man was acting uppity. Well, that's something. That's a story. And this is the guy Charles wanted to write about? The people in this group fervently believed the basic theme of evil, and it was easy to see why. They'd been told that Cobb was a bad man over and over all of their lives. The sheer repetition was impressive to them. The repetition felt like evidence. And they were told over and over about Cobb's depravity by people they respected, told very often by their daddies, who passed down to them all the sacred baseball lore, the things you needed to know to be a well-rounded person in the world. They also read about the bad Cobb in articles and books. In one such book, written by a man named Al Stump, it was said that when little children wrote to Cobb asking for an autographed picture or baseball advice, he steamed the penny stamps off the return envelopes and kept them for himself and never wrote back. In another book, this one about Ty Cobb's contemporary Trespeaker, a respected baseball historian named Timothy Gay wrote that Ty Cobb could not abide the sight of a black person walking down the street. Gay said that he, Cobb, would pistol whip any African-American he saw on the sidewalk. And then, of course, there were the stories about how Ty Cobb sharpened his spikes. Before every game, Cobb, it was written in several books and many articles, would sit in the dugout, sometimes it was said on top of the dugout, honing his cleats with a large file and cackling maniacally. <laughs> Learson goes on to reveal that he was also a part of this school of thought about Cobb and set out to write his book to prove that group right, which affected his thoughts when visiting Cobb's boyhood home and final resting place in Royston, Georgia. There was a weathered pine reef wreath, a plastic pink lily, and a few baseballs stuck behind the grating in front of the door. How pathetic, I thought. Seen fit for a villain. I pressed my forehead on the warm glass window and peered inside. Peered inside. Cobb and his spinster sister were on one side, and their parents were on the other. Very tidy, I thought, just as you might expect. Though I would have thought the same thing if it had been messy in there. I had predisposition towards believing Cobb was evil, remember, and so whatever I saw would have confirmed my opinion. You know how they say that your hair and your fingernails continue to grow after you die? As I slid squinting through that window, I imagined Cobb lying there in a kind of Howard Usian dishabille, his fingers and hair, his hair and his fingernails filling the casket like excelsior, the shrinking flesh pulling back his mouth into a hideous zombie grin. I was scaring myself a bit, creating a little horror movie in my head, and it was fun. And when we come back, we're going to continue to listen to this terrific speech by Charles Learson, former editor at Sports Illustrated, author of the book Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. His speech at Hillsdale College continues 
after this message. And we continue with our American stories. And on this day in history, the great Ty Cobb was born in 1886. And of course, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And by the way, we happen to be bringing you a speech that was given at Hillsdale College by an author, Charles Learson, who also happened to spend much of his adult life at Sports Illustrated, where he ended up being an executive editor. And what he was up to here in this book was, well, he was up against myth and mythology about Ty Cobb and really dark and terrible and inaccurate mythology. And Learson learned about this false mythology by doing what writers are supposed to do. Research, investigate, prod, and probe. Let's pick up where we last left off. But what about that Cobb's 19th century southern roots? How could someone born in Georgia in 1886 not be kind of racist? I'll tell you what I found out. Not because I'm a genius or the Babe Ruth of researchers, but because I use the methods and standards that would apply to any conventional history book. Ty Cobb, it turned out, descended from a long line of abolitionists. His great-grandfather was a minister who preached against slavery and was run out of town for his troubles. His grandfather was the equivalent of a conscientious objector who refused to fight in the Confederate Army because of the slavery issue. And his father was an educator and state senator who spoke out for his black constituents and had a very short political career as a result, and once broke up a lynch mob in town. Yeah, and by the way, having been a transplanted Yankee now living in the South, nothing sickens me more than the assumptions of people outside of the South about Southerners. And it's despicable. It's despicable. And here you see it, evidence right up front. This was one of the big myths of Cobb, racist. Of course, he's from Georgia. That's why. Next, on the top of Cobb's family's activism against racism, Ty himself, well, he took a clear stance. Cobb himself was never asked about racism and segregation until 1952 when the Texas League was finally integrating and the Sporting News asked him what he thought. The Negro should be accepted wholeheartedly and not grudgingly, he said. The Negro has the right to play professional baseball and who's to say he has not? Other ballplayers and ex-ballplayers were keeping mum on the topic or saying they didn't think mixed-race baseball was a good idea. Cobb, though Southern, was saying accepted wholeheartedly and not grudgingly. By then, he'd attended many Negro League games, sometimes throwing out the first ball and often sitting in the dugout with the players. 
He said that Willie Mays was the only modern-day player he'd pay to see and that Roy Campanella, another black man, was the player who reminded him most of himself. How about that? Not in the movie. Remember we did the Johnny Cash Hour? All the stuff that wasn't in the movie about Cash's Christian faith? It was nasty how how over the top, they how out of their way they went to eliminate that part of Cash's life. And this is just straight nasty. Because all he had to do was read an old sports magazine to do the research. 1952, taking that stand, makes you a, a Courage Award winner. Oh, except you're from Georgia, so how could that be? And then there was the myth we got a laugh out of earlier concerning fan letters from children. And did he really steal stamps from little children? Letters in museums and private collections showed that Cobb did in fact respond to his young fans, sometimes with handwritten letters that ran to five pages. He would often apologize for sending two or three autographed photos when the writer had asked only for one. And he, only told the kids, and he always told the kids and adults who wrote to him that he was honored by their request for his autograph. You can just wonder, how did this happen? How did this happen? And what about Cobb's alleged spiking of other players with his cleats? This one I heard more than any other from anybody. And there's that picture, that infamous picture that we've all seen. What did Cobb's opponents actually think about him and this? He believed very strongly that the runner had the right of way in what he called my little patch right in front of the bag. If the fielder wanted to put his leg or his hands in that danger zone, that was, as they said on, in those days, on his watch. The other players I found respected Cobb's ability and his consistency and agreed with the little patch theory. It was no fun putting the ball on Cobb when he came slashing into the plate, said Wally Shang, an American League catcher, but he never cut me up. He was too pretty a slider to hurt anyone who put the ball on him right. Cobb's teammate, infielder Germany Schaefer, said, Ty Cobb is a game-square fellow who never cut a man with his spikes intentionally in his life, and anyone who gets by with his spikes knows it. The general theme of the ballplayer appraisals was that the civilians may think that Cobb uses his spikes too much, but we, the men who play the game, know better. And if Cobb could dish out the punishment and the intimidation, he could also take it. Steve O'Neill of the Cleveland Naps once favored Cobb with the greatest compliment a catcher can give. He came home on a base hit and was blocking the plate. And I was blocking the plate, O'Neill said. I got him in the kidneys and knocked him out. When he came to, he didn't say a word. He just got up and limped back to his position. And there you have it. No double standard for Cobb. That patch of earth rule applied to him and everyone else. And there was mutual respect about it. So how did the Cobb we know as a monster, how did that happen in the first place? A really good question if you look at all the facts and research Learson did. One that can be answered by the passage of time. A journalist named Al Stump, who practiced sensationalism in writing an autobiography about Cobb, and the repetition of these myths, including a movie that Cobb, Cobb's biographer Al Stump wrote himself with Ron Shelton, and the repetition of these myths until everyone assumes they're the facts. What I didn't understand until I undertook this project was the power of repetition to mold minds. In some cases, repetition may be stronger than truth. You know how I said earlier that your hair and fingernails continue to grow after your death? That's not true. And the fact that we've heard it a million times doesn't make it so. In Cobb's case, people were entertained and flattered by the myth of evil that was created by this scandal monger named Al Stump. So they repeated it, and they became impressed by the sound of their own echoing voice. 
And that's a shame, because along the way, a man's reputation was destroyed, and a very good story, a reality that is more interesting than the myth, was obliterated. I didn't set out to right any wrongs or clean up Cobb's reputation. Indeed, as I've told you, I originally set out to soil it some more. But in trying to start from scratch and tell the story of a man's life, I wound up with a biography that, for better or worse, comes with a message, at least for those people in that large and avid second group who believe the myth of the evil Cobb. And the message is simply this. Stop talking for a minute and listen, because there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. Now, Cobb, however, could still be considered a monster, but a monster of a more legitimate kind. When Cobb made it to first, which he did more than anyone else, he batted over 403 seasons, the fun had just begun. Cobb understood the rhythms and the protocols of the game, and he constantly fooled around with them, keeping everyone nervous and off balance. He played with the sports writers then called psychological baseball, though he often appeared to be in need of a psych ward himself. His stated intention was to be a mental hazard for the opposition, and he did this by hopping around in the batter's box, constantly changing his stance as the pitcher released the ball, and then, when he got on base, hopping around some more, chattering, making false starts, limping around and feigning injury, and running at precisely the wrong moment when you'd least expect it. He still holds the record for stealing home, perhaps the most exciting play in all of baseball and rarely seen today. He did it 54 times. Think about it. Ty Cobb once stole second, third, and home on three consecutive pitches. <laughs> he once turned a tap back to the pitcher's mound into an inside-the-park home run. And he didn't even slide. And what remarkable numbers. I mean, it's, I'm just going to read you a few more, because again, that lifetime batting average, 367. Stolen bases, 892. Triple crown, 1909, 12-time AL batting champ. He was a home run leader, too, in 1909, four-time AL RBI leader, and six-time stolen base leader. It's just amazing. And regrettably, how people now remember him is from that movie as some kind of racist who might have been an okay baseball player. As opposed to a guy who wasn't a racist, maybe he just wasn't particularly nice. And yet the journalist gets the last word here, folks. I mean, that's what this story is really all about. It's about Ty Cobb, no doubt. And on this day in history, of course, he was born. And it's about so much more. And again, that writer got the last word. The writers got it wrong. They had their own agenda. And it happens very often in history. And not just history history, sports history and so many other things. And that's why we do what we do here in Our American Stories. So many great people are sometimes not known in this country because the writers, again, get the last word. Well, we got the last word here. Professor Learson got the last word here. Ty Cobb's story, the real Ty Cobb story, here on Our American Story.
is Our American Stories, and today we bring you a story our field correspondent Faith picked up while she was back home in California. And here is the first part of that piece. Kathleen Broder grew up in Los Angeles, California, and has lived in California her whole life. She is a 69-year-old retired grade school teacher and has had five children of her own. But Kathleen, she's not your ordinary retiree. She spends most of her time training for and participating in triathlons. A triathlon is a multiple-stage competition most commonly involving swimming, cycling, and running. She races in about seven triathlons a year and runs about, you know, only one or two marathons as well. And at this point, Kathleen has participated in over 50 triathlons. Her obsession? Well, it began with running. Yeah, I was always very hyperactive, you know, it's Kathleen, slow down. Kathleen, don't touch that. Kathleen, I was very hyperactive and so forth. And so um, when I was a young adult, I got into, or before that, and before college, I got into running. My first marathon, I was, I think I was 28. And I really liked that. And then, you know, so I was running all the time. But then we got married, and I think I was 34 when I had my first baby. And when I got pregnant, you know, some women run through all their pregnancies and everything. I just dropped it. I mean, I was so exhausted. Um, after a while, you know, when the kids were a little older, I, I got back into it. And then um, I started, um, I think, really getting back into marathons about 10 or 15 years ago. And I started really enjoying it again. And it was actually through running that she met her husband, Mike. We met, in, we were in the Santa Monica Track Club. We were just running buddies for a couple years, and then one day Mike said something about, oh, well, it's just about time to settle down, and I said, yeah, me too. Okay, we got married the next month. I mean, we never really dated. We were just friends, and then we got married. <laughs> we had met, and then we really didn't spend much time together, and then we started going to, we would go to races, and we would drive together and so forth, but you know, it was never a dating relationship. It just turned, you know, the relationship changed really fast. And then we got married, we had kids, we had, so two years later we had our first and then we had another one and then we had another one and we just kept having them. So, okay, this is weird. I had listened to this tape thing, cassette tape thing of um, mining your diamonds in your own acre. <laughs> So it's really funny, you know, like stop looking all over the place, just look around your own area. And I think that kind of tweaked me a little bit. So, yeah, and we were always got along. We both liked classical music and we had a lot of the same friends. And, you know, we were just a gang of single people, adults that we just hung out together. And then all of a sudden, and we lived only a couple blocks from each other. So, you know, sometimes we'd run together, but mostly we'd run together in the track club. You know, and then all of a sudden, we just settled down and got married. So it was running that brought them together. Who needs dating websites when you have running clubs? Most people know that constant running can take quite the toll on your body. And most people Kathleen's age, well, their body starts to give out on them. Knee problems, hip problems, and so on and so forth. 
In order to avoid those issues, Kathleen started to take some precautionary steps, which is how her interest in triathlons got started. I started realizing that a lot of my friends, you know, their knees started going and they started complaining and I had fewer and fewer running friends. I thought, oh, that's me. I better cross train. I started swimming a little bit and biking. I already had a bike, but I was biking a little bit, not too much. And then my son and I were up in Carpinteria and we were camping. And this was about eight or nine years ago. And we saw this thing called, I had never seen a triathlon. And I couldn't believe it. I, I saw it and I said, I'm going to do that. And I, I was talking to all the people, well, what comes first and why is it in that order? And I was just kept, I was fascinated. And so um, I immediately signed up for swim lessons. I mean, I knew how to swim, but, you know, real, real swimming. I bought a steel bike. I didn't know what kind of bike to buy, but I bought one online. So the next year, I did the Carpinteria Triathlon. I probably was the last one to finish because I had—I didn't even know how to shift the gears on the bike. The swim was so scary, and and then you know the run was fine. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm a tri- triathlete, and I thought that would be it. But something—I just kept—I just enjoyed it so much. So then I joined um, this swim group out at CLU. And they were starting a triathlon club, and so I started working out with them, and of course, and then I had to get a better bike, and it just took over. <laughs> and so I wasn't retired yet, but I, school became less and less of a priority. And so I started realizing, I don't really have time to go to work. I have too many workouts, and you know that's why I retired. Besides the fact that Mike kept telling me I was stupid for working because I could make just as much money on my retirement, I thought, and he had already been retired for so long. So I thought, okay. And that was when her triathlon career took off. She began with some shorter races before diving headfirst into the longer ones. I started doing the little sprint triathlons. Those are the short ones. The problem with those is that those depend on mostly on speed and I'm not fast I just have a lot of endurance you know I was I did okay but those were kind of scary because you know things go flying and just have to always keep going so then a couple years after I started I started doing the Olympic ones and I liked that a lot more three years ago I started doing the half Ironman and I really really liked those because I was really competitive that's when I got really competitive A half Ironman triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike ride, and a 13.1-mile run. And this year, Kathleen qualified for the World Championship for the half Ironman. The last several years, this race has taken place far away, such as Austria and Australia. This year, she will be running in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There are a number of other races that Kathleen has ran as well such as some popular ones, like the Boston Marathon. Kathleen has ran the Boston Marathon three times. She will be running it again this year, beating her qualifying time by 24 minutes. How could she do that? What's this woman's training philosophy? A slow, steady pace with a lower heart rate allows an endurance athlete to train longer and more often without stress or injury. Obviously, Kathleen is not your typical triathlete. But what does a typical training week look like for her? I'm getting tired even thinking about it. 
Does this woman take any rest days? I really listen to my body, and I can tell, like I did a, a century, uh, a 100-mile bike ride on Saturday, and it was very hilly in Solvang, and um, I could tell, so I was supposed to, in my brain, I was going to run on Sunday, and I didn't. And on Monday, I have two groups that I swim with, two different ones, one in the morning at 6 and one at um, six, 7 o'clock at night, and I was supposed to run in the middle of the day, and I didn't, because I could tell I was worn down. So I did a bike ride today, but it wasn't, it was like 30 miles, it wasn't that big a deal, but it was just to, you know, kind of get, get back. The days that I take off, every once in a while, you know, life happens, somebody gets sick, or I get sick, or that might be a day that I, that I take off but I don't work it into my schedule. I either, there's something always happening. I usually do two things a day, but um, sometimes like um, if it's my long run day, you know, I won't, I probably won't do anything else except run. And when we come back, more from Kathleen Broder, 30 mile bike ride, not a big deal. A big deal for everyone in this studio, that's for sure, me included. Actually, a one-mile bike ride right now in my present condition would be a really big deal. When we come back, more with Faith and Kathleen, a 69-year-old triathlete who's making us all here in the studio look, well, just plain silly. This is Our American Stories, and we continue Faith Garcia's conversation with a 69-year-old triathlete named Kathleen Broder. And by the way, what's so fascinating about this lady is she had never heard of a triathlon. And then when she heard what it was, which is a mile-plus swimming, a long, long bike ride, and a very long run, she thought, hey, let me give that a shot. Let's continue with their conversation. So you work out like two or three times a day? Sometimes? Yeah, I'm not allowed. I don't let myself work out three times a day. <laughs> you don't let yourself? I don't, no, I, well, the only time I do that is on Thursdays because I swim at um, six in the morning and then I meet my friend at, uh, afterwards at 7.30 at the park and we usually ride down to Zuma and back. But she has a coach that makes her run after her bike. And so sometimes in support, I will... Um, <laughs> I will um, run with her afterwards. And the hard part about that is that on Wednesdays, I swim at lunch, and then Wednesday nights, I have track. And then Thursday morning, I have swim, and then I bike with her, and then sometimes I run. So I am, Thursdays are a really hard day. Now that all adds up to about 18 to 20 hours a week. Basically a part-time job. Of course, with that kind of exercise, she needs to refuel herself. And during the races, you will catch her downing those awful goo packets. But her signature snack are those tiny little peanut butter crackers that she munches on during the biking part of her races. And of course, when she's not racing, she gets hungry too. Obviously, if you work out two or three times a day, I eat like, constantly. Are you always hungry? Um, I am 
and I really try I really try to catch it before I get starving or else I'll eat something, you know, like Carl's Jr. or something. I try to always, you know, to have stuff. I pretty much eat anything and most of my friends are real, you know, vegan maniac people. You know, some people eat only raw foods and some, you know, they have all kinds of these crazy things. But I don't do any of that because it's not like I'm training for the Olympics or something. I eat a lot, but for when I'm working, if I'm coming up on a race, a couple days before, I start eating a lot more simple carbohydrates because you want to, you don't want a lot of that, of the stuff in your system, you know, you want it to kind of get through. And so I'll eat more like, you know, white rice and I won't eat any fresh vegetables. I won't eat um, any heavy meats or anything like that, and especially the night before. And then in the morning, I have you know, I have the banana and oatmeal, and I usually eat on the way to the race. And you know, there's just certain things that you do. For anyone who runs races or competes in triathlons, they know that bodily functions, well, they can make the race a little more uncomfortable than it already is. The last really stupid thing I did was, um, it was at the Oceanside 70.3 last year. And the wait to get into the water was so long. And I had a water bottle with me, because sometimes, you know, you get in that ocean water, you get very thirsty and you can't drink anything and you're in there for a long time. So I, was, so I had a water bottle. I drank a whole water bottle while standing in line. And then I was swimming. But you can't, unless you stop and relax, you can't be. <laughs> and so I was in such pain because I didn't want to stop because I had all these people behind me. And, um, and it, I, just, I, I just died. So, you know, eventually I got out and it was okay. But, um, because you was, had to pee. Yeah, it was, because you can't really, you can't swim at the same time. I mean, because you're not relaxed if you're swimming. And so, you know, just to tread water and people swim over your head. And so <laughs> that was really all. That was the worst thing. Kathleen, she works out with all different types of groups. Of course, there are very few people her own age in these groups. She is often much faster than people 30 years younger than her because her running endurance is so high. Typically, she said her swim is her worst event. Her biking is good, but then she really catches people on that run. And at 69 years old, going on 70, she puts young guys in their 20s to shame. It's funny because even my swim coach will say, he'll point to me and say, see, though, I mean, she's a real athlete. You know, he's always saying these things about me. It's so embarrassing. But, you know, I really don't think about it and I don't really compare myself. And, the, and I do know other people who are, you know, my age and much faster. But I do know there's not very many of them. You know, and there aren't, and the older I get, you know, like I'm going into this 70 to 74, that's the age category for triathlons that I'm in now. A lot of times, like this weekend, I'm doing a try and I'm the only person in my age category. So it's like kind of relaxing. It's like, all right, this is great. But, you know, I still want to do well. Yeah, I don't know. I really can't wrap my head around that because I think because I work out with so many people who are younger, I just enjoy, I enjoy that. I have a hard time being around people my own age. I like being around kids, people my kids' age, you know, that, that kind of thing. And that's who, I, that's who I'm with. I really enjoy. And I think 
I think I think they're I'm like them, but when they're looking at me, they're looking at their grandmother. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's pretty funny, but I just enjoy that. And the older people that do I do work out with, I mean, a lot of them are in their 60s. You know, there are some. We're all kind of the same. You know, we all enjoy being with all ages, and and、um, you know, we're pretty much you know we do the same kind of stuff. There are some who are. Very, very competitive, and you know, it's like killer, and you know, and then they take it a lot more seriously. But I think a lot of us, most of us, have been very active our whole lives. You know, either marathoners or something. You know, you don't come into something like an endurance,、um, you know, kind of a, an activity out of out of the blue. You know, you've done something for several years, or it's a personality type. I think it's per- a lot of it's personality. When I'm out there, it's like. You know, sometimes I'm kind of amazed that I'm out there too, and that these people, you know, like I'm passing this guy that's 24 years old. <laughs> Especially on the bike. I mean, seriously, this last weekend when we did this century in Solvang, it was it was hilly. It wasn't horrible. There were so many guys carry or just walking their bikes up these hills, and I mean, I was in my you know my easiest gear, but I'm like.、Mm-hmm. You know, good morning, good morning. I'm still going in there. I'm passing them up and all this. But what they do, guys, they power through at the beginning, not realizing you can't do that when you're running. You know, riding a hundred miles. <laughs> so that's how you beat out a lot of the guys is by well, they're stupid.、Yourself. Yeah, yeah, they're stupid. Yeah, and a lot of them are heavy. Some you can't always tell because some of these heavy people are are very strong, especially in the swim. My gosh. Huge people that are so fast in the water, but bike on a hill and you're heavy, got to work a lot harder. And then the run too. So, but of course, not every experience has been great for Kathleen. She has fallen off her bike and gotten a concussion. She has broken her collarbone, gotten plantar fasciitis, and even tripped while running and broken her hand. As you can tell, Kathleen though she's a pretty intense person. And it is hard for her to stop. She once told me a story about a race she finished where it was so cold she had hypothermia, but she was so out of her head that she just kept on going. Talk about endurance. Kathleen Broder at 69 years old is definitely an anomaly, but of course she will not always be able to be this active. But for now, she's just incredibly grateful and enjoys what she is able to do. I would never just sit still. I would always be doing, you know, some kind of an activity. It doesn't have to be an athletic thing, because I do. I love to play cards. I love to play board games. So I can do that. But I would just want to have nice people, active people, not, not real old people. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I I consider myself so lucky to be able to do all this. And one of my friends the other day said、um, that I work out. My training partner said. That she never goes on Facebook because it makes her feel bad because she sees all this stuff that other people are doing that she's not doing, and I started thinking about that and thinking I just feel so fortunate because、um, I think you know I worked a long time and you know I loved my job but you know I enjoy so much what I'm doing now and I have my bike group groups. And I have my triathlon groups, and I have my swim groups, and I have my running groups, and there's a totally different people in all of them. There's some crossover, but not a lot. So I feel really fortunate because I have a lot of people to 
hang out with and stuff. Yeah, and you're fortunate because like to have your body in such good like yeah. condition that it's not you know breaking down on you. Yeah, and you know what? If it does break down, I'm ready. I mean, you know, you can I can do, I can do other things. I mean, you know, if I broke my leg. You know, I've had to come back from injuries and stuff, so I don't think it wouldn't be the end of the world. I would, I would just do something else. But you know, I enjoy that. That's why I'm, I feel fortunate now. So this is just something you like doing for it's now. Just, yeah. And what a great piece! Thanks so much for that, Faith and Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old triathlete. I just wrote a few notes down. I love that she said, "I have a hard time being around people my own age." Well, I'd have a hard time around being around you. Kathleen, you'd exhaust me. She said she eats constantly. Well, we eat constantly here at Our American Stories, too. We just never even move our bodies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old lady who decided, well, I'm going to do this thing called the triathlon. And by the way, a triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, then a 56-mile bike ride, and then a 13-mile run. Give that a shot on your day off. This is Our American Stories.